So you ready for the big dinner? Everyone got the turkey and all that lined up? Did you have to fight the crowds to get the uh, stuffing this year um, at the grocery stores? So I have a question. How many of you will have a smaller dinner, smaller dinner crowd, or you've had to change your plans because of COVID? So a good probably at least half of you. We're, we were going to head to Ohio. We decided to, to, to stay in New York for this one and uh, go from there. And I know a lot of people are changing their plans. So our Thanksgiving dinners might not be quite as big this year. Well, our passage today talks about a big dinner. Uh, it's, it's one of the most interesting of the miracles in the life of Jesus where he, he miraculously feeds an immense crowd. It says when they start counting, they just count the men and they come up with 5,000 men, males. So you could presume that it's quite possible there were women and children um, it, so there could have been ten to 15,000 people all told. This, there's a lot in this passage. And I, I, it's the one miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels. Miracle from the life of Jesus in all four Gospels. And so there's a lot of things that it could focus on. And I was given thought of like, what aspect of this should I teach on? Because I could really easily do three or four sermons out of just this one miracle. And then God provided. He gave me a conversation that helped me know which way to go. So last week, someone came to me with a message from God. He had a word from the Lord. Um, and I say, okay. And so I, I listened, and, and it came down to this. It says, he said, it was not true that God loves all people. And he cited Romans 9, where it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And he says, John 3.16 doesn't mean that God loves every person in the world. Um, instead, God only loves those who, who have been chosen by him. Those whose names are in the book of life. So that was the word from the Lord. Okay. My initial response is, well, that doesn't fit what I've taught most of my ministry. So, all right. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, but it did get me thinking. And, and I like thinking out these kind of things. So the first thing I wanted, wh where does that teaching come from? What's the source of that? And it, this, it comes from the Calvinist theory on predestination. So John Calvin was one of the reformers, along with Martin Luther. Those are the two big names. And Calvin emphasized God's sovereignty in salvation, that we, we are saved by his work, not by our effort. And that's something we, we agree on. Um, and also the emphasis that God chose us, we who put our faith in Christ for salvation, more than we chose him. That God chose us for salvation. And again, we agree. So, there's Reformed teaching, which Reformed, John Calvin would be part of that. And this church falls under the Reformed tradition. That I would describe it as this way. We're saved in Christ alone, through faith alone, and by grace alone. That is what the Reformed teach. And that flows out of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's Reformed teaching in, in its basics. What, what I suggest my friend was, was saying would be what I would put on, would call the extreme Reformed or ex- hyper-Calvinistic view. And they would say it's the logical conclusion of this truth that then, well, if God chose some to be saved, he chose others to be damned. And those who are not elect, those who are not in the book of life, they, God must not love them or else he would have chosen them too. And that idea is what I want to respond to this morning. That's the, that's the framework out of which I want to approach this story. Because usually the debate about predestination and all that takes place in Paul's letters. And we look at the letters that talks about these, these ideas of God's sovereignty and God's divine choices. And so you play that out on these very logically written letters. What I want to do instead is look at Jesus. Because we're told that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And so let's see what we can learn from that deals with this topic by looking at how Jesus responds in this passage. So, we're Mark 6. We need to back up just a little bit to something we talked about last week. Last week, Jesus had sent out the disciples two by two throughout um, the area of Galilee. They were to go to these villages and proclaim the good news and do what Jesus had done, including healings and, and all of that. And so they came back together again. They regathered with Jesus. And that's what's happening at the beginning of our passage that Bill read. And so when they regather, the thing to do would, of course, be tell the stories, right? They're reporting back to Jesus what they had done and seen and heard. And, you know, so Jesus could give them feedback and they could talk about it. Well, they're not able to do that. They're not able to have it. The crowds are so great and pressing in that there's not an opportunity to talk. There's not even an opportunity to eat dinner. Um, There's so much craziness around Jesus because of the crowds. So Jesus says, let's go to a deserted place, a desolate place. Let's go find a place to be alone, away from these crowds. In New York, we'd say, let's go up to our camp. And, and so that's what they do. They get in their boats. They're fishermen, so they had boats. And they head out on the Sea of Galilee, and that gave them a buffer from the crowds. And so they start heading out, but the crowds follow along. And amazingly enough, they, they follow on foot. And they start to, maybe, I don't know if the crowds could see them, you know, in the boats out in the lake, and they just sort of, you know, kept them in sight and, and went along, or they just guessed where they might be heading. And as the crowds went on foot, it drew more attention. As they went through the villages along the lakeside, that more people, hey, where are you going? Oh, Jesus is headed this way. Oh, well, I want to see what happens. So the crowd got bigger and bigger. And so by the time they get to the destination, which should be this nice, grassy, beautiful area on the Sea of Galilee, thinking they'll be alone, 
It says when they arrive, what do they see? They see an immense crowd beyond anything they expected waiting for them there. Um, and so that's the conundrum that they have. I find, I, I find this interesting. Jesus had a plan. And the crowd interrupted his plan. His plan was to get alone with his disciples so he could focus on them and have them report back to him about their mission trips, their, their, their preaching. But Jesus takes this interruption, and what does he do with it? Well, let me ask you this. How do you, how, how do you react to interruptions? Do you welcome them as opportunities from God? So, uh, I remember a, par- a particular time I was in my office back in Ohio at my church there, and we were in a, a downtown area. It was near the interstate. Um, and so we would get a lot of people coming by who needed help. And I remember one particular woman came, and she was not the first one that day that came for help. And I had stuff I had to do, you know. Sometimes you got to get those things done off your list. And so I, I just said, hey, well, you need to go to the social agency. They'll, they'll take care of you. And she just started crying. Why won't anyone help me? And I guess she had gone to church after church, and each one had, had shut her down. And so I stopped and said, okay, come on in. My heart changed. My attitude changed. Come on in. Let's talk. And so I don't remember specifically what she needed. I think it might have been something to do with clothes or food or maybe gas. Some, but it was something we could deal with. And, but it was just that interruption and what it takes to, to get you to see a person as a person, not as an interruption. How did Jesus see this crowd? This, I think this is the most significant verse in this whole passage. Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. The word it says for compassion, it's like he could feel it in his guts is what that word means. And he felt for these people, and what would drive them to walk all day to follow where he was at. And, and when he saw them, he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, these were Jewish people. So theoretically, like they would fall under Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. But not these folks. These were people who were not following or listening to God. These were hurting people. These were people who were lost in their lives. And what does Jesus do? He spends the day with them. He gives them the whole day to teach them, to speak into their lives, maybe to try to convince them that God loves them, that the Father cares about them, that they, might, that they, they can know the Father. And he's focused on these people. In fact, he's so focused on them, the day slips away. And it's only later in the day when the disciples finally come to him, and this would totally be me. I'd be like looking at my watch like, Jesus, do you, do you, do you know what time it is? It's it, Jesus... You know, um, and so he, he comes to, they come to him and say, Jesus, it, it's pretty late. These people probably should go get something to eat. No one planned for this. So we don't, they don't have food. 
And maybe if we send them away now, they might have a chance to get food at, at the local country, in the countryside or somewhere around here. And so, Jesus, here's what they said. and says, I have a better plan. You give them something to eat. <laughs> okay, wait a second. Um, they, they count the crowd again. You know, what... Are you saying we should like go buy bread for this whole crowd? I think you know Matthew, the the tax collector, he's doing the math. He says, "Jesus, I calculate that will cost two hundred denarii for us to feed a whole crowd like this." You know, now for our sake, a denarii is a day's wage, so two hundred denarii is about half a year's salary. Take your salary, divide it in two. That's how much it would cost to feed the crowd for one meal, right? That that's the calculation they're making. Do you hear a bit of panic in, in there? What do you mean feed the whole crowd? What, what are you talking about? I, I don't get this. And, um, and then there's the problem, where would you even buy that bread at the last moment? You know, is, is, would that be available to go or for pickup? Um, and and so, so Jesus, so, okay, we calms it down. He says, well, bring to me what bread we have. And so they, they, get, they look all in their bags and they come. We have five loaves of bread. Oh, oh, and two fish too. You know, like, you know, not much bread. There was not enough. No, there was not enough for them to have a meal as the 12 disciples. Remember that they, they needed to eat too. They, they didn't get that chance. And so there they are. And Jesus says, okay, let's start with this. And what he does he blesses it. He look, looks up to heaven and, and gives thanks and prays to God to, to, to bless this food. And then he says, okay, get the people organized into groups. And they get them organized into 50s and 100s. That's probably why they knew it was 5,000, is they had to count as they were organizing them. Have people sit down, relax, let's do this. And then he breaks the bread, and then Jesus feeds 5,000, 10,000 people, right? What does he do? He gives it to the disciples, and they feed the people. Interesting. He gives it to them. So imagine you're one of those disciples. You get, a, a, you know, you're there, and Jesus says, okay, there's that group. Go give them some bread. So you get the bread from Jesus. You go over. How much are you going to rip off and give to the first person? You're looking, you're looking at this whole crowd of 50 to 100 people, right? And you have a couple loaves of bread. You're going to be like, here. It'd be like the amount we get at communion, right? You know, you can have a taste, and you can have a taste. You know, and even then, you're not going to have enough. And so you, you go back, oh, there's, there's more bread yet. So then you take the bread back and say, okay, you can have a little more. You can have a little more. And go back a third time. Oh, there, there's still more bread. And you keep going back and forth from Jesus to the crowd, always bringing more bread. And you know you don't have enough, but yet there's enough. And over and over. And by the end, you're probably like, here you go. You want some more? You want some more? Hey, you get, everyone get enough? Because it says at the end, all ate and were satisfied. How many times do you think it took them to, to how many times did they have to go back and forth to Jesus to get this done? And how amazing would it be to, to the disciples that every time you went back to Jesus, there was bread enough for the people there. 
Um, and then Jesus, when they're all done, says, go get your baskets. Collect any leftovers. And they each went around with the basket, and they're all full. So now, finally, they have a chance to eat their own, <laughs> own dinner after this is all over. Um, looking at the story... I, want, I, I've, I think I want to highlight three truths that are demonstrated from this passage. There could be many more, but here's the three I want to highlight. And the first one is super simple. Jesus demonstrates the love and concern that God has for the people of this world. Notice how Jesus cared about those who didn't know him. I think he even showed concern. He showed love and concern. He cared about their problems. He cared about what was going on in their lives. Those who, may, who didn't know him and those who may never even turn to God, he saw their plight. He saw their hurts. He saw their lostness. He saw their need and he responded. He gave them his time. He gave them his teaching. He gave them what they needed the most at that moment, the, the bread. And he was going to give them even more. He knew that their ultimate problem was dealing with their sin. And Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ gave his life for people who still were turning away from him, rejecting him. Now, does this mean that all people will come to salvation? No. Some will still turn away. Some will receive the gift of Jesus and walk away. But Jesus was willing to, to provide for, to care for, even those who would walk away from him and miss out on God's salvation. There's a theological truth that the Bible declares in many different ways, and it's especially true as we get near to Christmas. Um, it's, it's this, that we see what God is like through Jesus. Um, Jesus is Emmanuel. It means God is in our midst. God is with us. Uh, the Colossians says Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. It's by Jesus we see what God is like. And the, the best passage for this is Hebrews 1 on the screen. And Hebrews 1 talks about how the Son of God has come. The one who is the creator of all has come into our world. But what does it mean that he's the Son? Well, it says the Son is the radiance of God's glory. What is radiance? It's the light that shines out from something. So the light, by Jesus, we see the light of God's true nature. And then it says, the Son of God is the exact representation of his being. In many cases, a, a son is like his father, right? You know, but there's always differences. No son is exactly like his father. But the Son of God is is exactly like his father in his character and nature and heart for people. Jesus shows us what God is like. And when we see Jesus showing compassion and care and concern for people, we know that that is God's heart for them as well. That's what we see in this passage. So what about that Reformed doctrine that salvation comes by faith alone, through grace alone. If that's true, why doesn't God, if he loves all people, just make it that all turn and be saved, turn and find salvation? Well, when it comes to God's plan of salvation, 
there's things we don't know or understand. I, I heard Tom refer to Isaiah 55, for your ways are higher than our ways. Uh, be, your understanding is far beyond our understanding. There are things about God that we, we don't know. Certain things have been revered, revealed clearly, such as salvation is through Jesus, the Son of God, and there's no other way. But other things are beyond our grasp, especially what leads some people to say yes and what leads others to, to reject the grace of Christ. And Christians have been arguing about that for at least 500 years. They had the big argument back in the Reformed times with Calvin and Luther and, and all of that. And the, are we predestined or, or whatever? Um, and actually, they even argued it back, if you look at Augustine, he was having that, that discussion. These are things, and we still, we get in debates. And I'll tell you, sometimes it's fun, right? The, the, the get into the deep waters and talk about that kind of stuff. I, I can do that. Um, a few years back, I was at the Four C's. That's our denominational uh, affiliation. I was at one of our annual gatherings with a bunch of pastors. And we were waiting for dinner to start. And we were, a few pastors were sitting around. And um, I decided I wanted to, to, to spice things up. So I said, um, what does it mean to be reformed? You know, to be a reformed pastor. And I knew at least one of them was really strong on that. And so... Um, basically we got a good old debate going for about half an hour for dinner and everyone had, and everyone described it differently and, and it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, the, the fun for, for a guy like me. So anyways, then we go into dinner and lo and behold, I, we just sort of sat with someone we didn't know. I end up sitting next to the president of the reformed Presbyterian seminary. So we ask him and he says, what does it mean to be reformed? I figured he, you know, he should know. And his answer was the one I gave you today. To be reformed is to believe that we're saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. So I figure that's official. That's the one I'm going with. I'm in, you know, on that definition. But, um, but anyways, you, you have these debates within these traditions. The Bible is deep enough to drown an elephant, but still simple enough for a child to play in, shallow enough for a child to play in, right? It teaches truths that even the youngest child can hear and know to be true. And what do we teach our children to sing? Jesus, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That the, the, Our children can play in those waters, right? And then there's times you can go into the deep waters and discuss, you know, salvation and the mystery of God's plan of salvation and how it works. But beware, you can get caught up in those abstract theological battles that will ultimately distract you from doing what the Lord wants you to do. So, so here's the thing. Don't try to drown the elephant where the child is playing in the water, right? There's times it's okay, you want to Swim in the deep water is fine, but don't drown the elephant where the child is playing. You know, let that be. Don't miss the, the clear truths when you're arguing the deep stuff. All right, second truth. Jesus wants his disciples to have the same love and concern for people. He wants his disciples of the same love and concern, just as he loved the, that crowd and had compassion on them 
and had concern for what was going on in their life, even though many of them may never have come to, to put their faith in him. He still had compassion. He wants us to have that same care and compassion for the people around us. We are not to set the, the world as our enemy. We are not to look around at people who don't believe in Jesus and see them as the opposition and, and be against them. Instead, we are to convey the love and grace of Christ in everything we are doing. Um, Jesus was teaching his disciples something when this happened. Think about who saw a miracle that day. Was it 5,000 people or 10,000? No, the crowd would have no idea what was going on. You ever be in a crowd and you're like, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden there's bread. Oh, great, there's bread. They must have brought bread. Someone brought bread. Oh, cool. You know, like they would have no clue. The only ones who would have known a miracle happened would be the ones Jesus said, hey, gather up what bread we have. They would have seen, right, that there was just five loaves and two fish. And they would have had, had time to wrestle with that idea of how would we ever feed a crowd like this? They knew the limits. Jesus did this miracle to teach his disciples something. To teach them to look at the crowd in a different way. Not as an eruption, but as people who, who needed a shepherd. And so, sometimes we're going to run into people that are impossible to love. Impossible to forgive. And we're going to struggle with that. Jesus says what is impossible for man is possible with me. And we are to go back to Jesus and, and get the strength, get what we need so that we could do what he's calling us to do. Freely we have received from God, we are to freely give. Jesus one time said, you know, you love those who love you back. What, what credit is that to you? What reward is there for doing that? Don't, don't the sinners do that? Don't the pagans do that? If you want to um, be like your father in heaven, love your enemies. Love those who don't love you back. Love those even who have set themselves against you. That's how you show what God is like. Now, as a side, as an aside, would, would God tell us to love our enemies if he didn't also love those who had set themselves as enemies against him? Yeah, I don't think he would. So God does love everyone, even those who don't love him back. Third truth, people have a hunger for God in their heart, but they don't know how to fill it. What was driving those people to follow Jesus around the lake? It had to have been more than just curiosity. Curiosity would have not gotten that big a crowd. Could have been, had to be more than just a desire to see more miracles. There was something inside them drawing them to Christ. I would contend that there's an emptiness in each and every person. Something that's, that's, that's missing apart from a, a relationship with God. When it says that we are made in the image of God, that means we are made to know and be known by God. That is the very purpose for which every human being was made. And outside of that relationship, there is something missing. There is an emptiness. And people are hungry for, for God, but they don't know it. 
And so instead of receiving from God, they so often turn to the things of this world and try to feed their life, try to feed that emptiness with the, the things that, that might make them feel important. They, they look for fame or they look for, for sex or they look for other things that, that, that will get them through the day when what they most need is to know and be known by the God of the universe. 1 John chapter 2 um, talks about don't love the things of this world. And, and let me, I want to read this passage from the message version because I think it really captures this, this idea. Here's what it says. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. That is the situation that people are in. They're hungry for God and they don't even know it. So what do we do? What's our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ? We are called to publicly declare to the people of this world that God loves them and that the best thing they could do is get connected to the God who, lo who, who loves them and knows them. We need to seek to clearly communicate that they will not find true life outside of Jesus Christ and that the things that they, they give their lives to other than him will ultimately leave them empty and unsatisfied. That is our calling, to, to promote that public message. But our, to do that, our message needs to be Jesus first. We need, I'm convinced that the best way to communicate to the people of this world what they're missing out on is to talk about Jesus, who he is, what he's like, what he did, um, and how he responded to people. As we close, I want you to think for a minute. Um, before we jump to our closing time, uh, the three truths I, I shared. Which of these do you need to hear this morning? I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to us as we, as we take in his word. Which of these three does the Holy Spirit wanna, want you to zone in on this morning? I want to give you a minute or so just to, to talk to God about that question. We'll leave these on the screen. But let, let the Holy Spirit speak to your life about, about how you need to respond to this word this morning. Father, we, we are convinced that, that you love those who don't even know you. 
who may never know you, those who've turned away from your love for them. Lord, may, we, may you show us how to, to lift up the name of your Son, that they might take a second look, that they might come to know the grace and, and goodness that flowed from his life and flows to us all as we, as we trust in him. Lord, we need you as our Savior. You are good. We, we lift all this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song as we lift up our mighty Savior.
Now people of God go forth in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ, filled with this Holy Spirit, that you might bear the light of Christ to everyone we encounter this week. Amen. Go in his peace.